The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, my colleague Tim Foster. Good morning, Tim. How are you doing? I'm well, Rich. Thank you. Well, we as we are recording this, of course, we are creeping up on the Christmas holiday, and we're we're right in the throes of the Christmas season. I'm sure a lot of you are in the midst of your Christmas shopping. Uh, and with that in mind, we have a guest with us today who's going to talk a little bit about a program out there that helps uh, some of the children out there who are in a unique situation in that they have a parent or parents who are incarcerated. Uh, we're joined by Sammy Perez uh, today, who's joining us. Um, I want to make sure I get it correct, too, Sammy. Are you from Angel Tree, or uh, what? What? And, and could you give us a title and the name of the organization again? Make sure I get it correct. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. So uh, my name is Sammy Perez, and I work for Prison Fellowship, uh, which is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Uh, we are also a leading advocate for criminal justice reform. Uh, and Angel Tree is a program of Prison Fellowship. Okay. Thank you. I knew uh, I wanted you to clarify that correctly. So I got. So tell us a little bit, I guess, about the program and uh, what it is you're doing, how it works, who who it impacts, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Angel Tree is a program of prison fellowship that um, actually uh, impacts uh, hundreds of thousands of families uh, across the country. So uh, essentially uh, what we do, it is it's our goal to uh, be able to partner with churches uh, from across the country to uh, serve children who have parents that are incarcerated. And uh, the way that that works is we uh, partner with these churches to actually, actually deliver Christmas gifts uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, along with these gifts, we will uh, also deliver uh, a message from the parent. And uh, what we found is that that is a uh, uh, really just an, uh, a terrific way to be able to strengthen uh, the bond between uh, the parent and the child during uh, the period of, of separation that happens during uh, incarceration, which uh, we know has a, a tremendous uh, negative impact actually on uh, the children who um, who experience this. Um, well, Sam, that's really interesting. How, who gets, I mean, how does somebody get involved in this? You know, because there's and, you know, obviously, even in the prison system, there's a wide range of faiths and belief systems. You know, is this something where you go into the into the prison system and, you know, look for people there who are interested in it? Do they contact you? How, how does somebody get affiliated with this? Yeah. So essentially, the, the way that the program works is uh, prison fellowship will go. Uh, inside of prisons uh, across the country. Uh, we'll work through chaplains and other prison fellowship staff to uh, collect signups uh, throughout the year. So we will um, uh, put that kind of offering out within prisons and individuals will sign up uh, as a, uh, you know, as a way to participate in the program and um, to ask, uh, you know, for us to be able to deliver that gift to uh, their child. And what we do is uh, we actually, on the outside, we partner with churches uh, who will sign up to um, sponsor a certain number of kids. And what that church does is they uh, work within their congregation to, to collect gifts for these children. Uh, they package those gifts and they actually uh, go in to, and deliver those throughout the uh, Christmas season. Now, this is personal to you. I mean, you were not a member of the Angel Tree when you were incarcerated, 
but you are a formerly incarcerated person and you have kids and this is this is real. This is not a something you're just talking about from an abstract point of view. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Tim. Uh, for, for, for me, um, my experience of incarceration lasted uh, close to about 10 years. And um, actually, the first time I, I met my son uh, was through a, a glass window uh, at a, a local county jail. Um, I was on the front half of serving uh, an 11 and a half year sentence uh, that I had received back in 2005. And, um, you know, for for me growing up, life was difficult. I actually didn't uh, have a relationship with uh, my father and uh, my relationship with my mom was um, a little bit kind of scattered as well. Um, so it, it was that was just really just passing down from, you know, uh, my mother and my relationship with my dad or my lack of relationship um, really to, to my children. And um, one of the things that, that I've been able to, to do upon release is actually um, been able to, um, you know, to mend that, that relationship with my oldest uh, who actually now uh, just recently turned 18 and he still uh, lives with me. And, um, you know, we've been able to kind of survive that period of incarceration. I actually only uh, saw him just a few times uh, while I was incarcerated, but um, was able to uh, maintain a, a sort of a bond with him um, that I've been able to, to, to strengthen now. And, you know, I think that um, had I been able to experience a program like Angel Tree, you know, throughout um, throughout my incarceration, I think it would have been significant uh, in terms of the impact that it would have had on, um, you know, my, my son and his uh him just knowing that I was thinking about him and that I cared for him. And, and we've seen that across the country where, um, you know, children receive gifts from their parents and they just light up because, um, you know, they they know that their parent is thinking of them and, and that they still love them. You know, and this is something uh, I, I confess I'm ignorant on. Are children able to visit their parents in prison? I, I mean, I know obviously spouses are and, and, you know, family is, but are young young children able to go? Yeah, uh, great question. Children are definitely able to visit. Uh, however, there, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to that. Uh, one of the challenges is that uh, a lot of prisons are actually not uh, very uh, local to where families live. A lot of them are in very rural areas where it requires miles and miles of travel. Um, sometimes uh, families even have to you know, rent hotel rooms or rent vehicles to be able to get to some of these locations. Um, so, so yeah, I think the uh, the the financial uh, cost of uh, visiting a parent is in prison is significant, especially when you think about the fact that uh, many of these families have, have lost a, a primary source of income, uh, which really just exacerbates their uh, ability to uh, be able to visit uh, a parent in prison. But that you know that's really where I think Angel Tree kind of comes into play, where you know if a parent isn't able or a family isn't able to go and visit their loved one, um, you know we can they can still maintain that connection. Uh, even if it's just by a, a simple gift uh, delivered. Yeah, I'm curious too, do, do you guys keep any data on things like recidivism or that the long-term impact of, of the program and the relationship building between an incarcerated person and their, and their kids for when that person is no longer incarcerated? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, Rich. And uh, we do know that, that research has shown that for uh, individuals who are able to maintain uh, a connection uh, with their children, that um, th that really does positively impact 
uh, the recidivism rates or, or rates of people actually returning to prison. And, um, you know, I can tell you from my own personal experiences, now a, a father of four, um, I, I really view uh, my responsibility, uh, my identity as a father, um, as a protective factor in, in my own journey of reentry, because it, uh, you know, prevents me from now going out and returning back to a life of crime, because now I know that uh, if I go out and commit a crime, that I'm not going to be the only person that's impacted. You know, I have a wife and, and four children that will be left behind. So um, I think it, it not only has a positive impact uh, on the family um, and for the individual who's incarcerated um, during incarceration, but it definitely uh, can serve as a protective factor even after. So if someone who is not incarcerated and is not involved in this as a family member, but they just want to support this program, how how could someone do that? Yeah, so that, that's a really uh, good question, Tim. And um, I'd love to kind of share with the folks who are, are listening today, um, which is, you know, we have actually done a terrific job of serving uh, thousands of kids across the state of California. But uh, we do know that we, we currently still have a need of about 623 kids uh, in the state that have yet to be served. So uh, what I would say is, would you be willing to spread some Christmas cheer? Uh, the, this holiday season and by, uh, you know, uh, going to our website and visiting um, at uh, prisonfellowship.org uh, slash VAT children. Uh, so once again, it's prisonfellowship.org slash VAT C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N. Uh, and we'll and put a link there in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Um, but by, by simply giving a, a gift of uh, $30, uh, you actually can uh, provide a Christmas gift and a message uh, for these uh, incarcerated children that um, uh, not only will uh, sort of cheer up their their holiday, but also just help them to know that uh, their parents are thinking about them and that their parents still uh, care for them and love them. Yeah, Sam, if you don't mind, I'll ask you one more personal question. And just, you know, your son, you said he just turned 18, you know, and, and that that's a real tough age for, for young men. There's lots and lots of temptations and stuff that happen out there. You know, are has... I guess, how has he adapted to you being back in his life? Now he's got siblings, et cetera. You know, how has this experience uh, impacted him? Not just your incarceration, but how you've come out of it and how you've chosen to redirect your life. Uh, you know, because that father-son thing can be so tough. You know, how, how has that worked out for you guys? Yeah. You know, I'd say that um, it, it, I'd be remiss not to acknowledge that it, it was challenging. Um, the the period of, of separation. So for me, it ended up being um, exactly about about seven years that um, I missed out of uh, my son's life, and um, that was challenging uh, upon release. Initially, um, it was actually difficult for me um, as I tried to learn about what my position was in his life. You know, um, basic things of you know how do I love him? Uh, how do I discipline him? How do I how do I lead him as as a model and as a father? But what I what I can tell you is that um, when uh, individuals are able to uh, come home and to, to step into this role, uh, which we know is extremely significant for uh, the well-being of children um, and step into a role as, as a father or as a mother, um, that it has a tremendous impact uh, on a child. It actually has the ability to change an entire generation. You know, I can tell you that, um, you know, I graduated uh, from college uh, back in 2015, and I was the first person in my family to ever graduate from college. And uh, one of the people that was with me on that day was my oldest son, and he got to 
to watch his father walk across the graduation stage. And, you know, I, I never got to have that experience with my dad. So um, now, you know, Elijah and I, we, we talk about um, him possibly going to college, right? So um, we know that um, when you can uh, strengthen the bond between a parent and child, um, uh, not only does it impact the parent, uh, but more importantly, it is definitely uh, has a significant impact on the child um, in their life trajectory. Well, it certainly sounds like a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, certainly sounds like you're making the most of uh, of this chance for yourself and your family. So kudos to you. That's that's uh, you know it's harder. My I so I have prefaced this before. My daughter is a mental health expert, and she worked in the San Mateo County Jail system for. Uh, many years. And I know it's tough. It's it's a very, very tough road. Once you're in, getting off that train is hard. And, uh, you know, to, to, you need some kind of a motivating factor to, to keep to keep those things, those wheels turning forward. So uh, kudos to you. It sounds like you've you have definitely found a thing that's uh, working for you. I really uh, I admire that quite a bit. Absolutely. Thank you, Rich. Hey, well, thanks for coming on and telling us about the program. And we'll uh, redirect our listeners to go to our website. We'll have a link in following up on this. This is not what I normally think of this yeah. season is, you know, people in jail and their their families. But it's got to be tough. I mean, it's got to be tough at any time of year. But right now, I can imagine it is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Yeah. We, we you know, we know that there's a, approximately uh, 1.5 million children. Uh, in America that have a parent that is in prison. And, um, you know, the, these children really do struggle, right? They're uh, four times as likely to actually suffer from uh, mental health problems, uh, three times as uh, uh, more likely than their peers to actually grow up in poverty, uh, and six times more likely to one day actually themselves uh, be involved in the justice system. So when we think about the need to really uh, to be able to step into these children's lives and to um, uh, help uh, change the trajectory um, is, is extremely significant. You know, Sammy, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this a little bit. Again, it's tough when you've been in. It's hard. To, it's hard. It's hard to stay out. So yeah. kudos to you, man. And, and good on you. And it sounds like you're going to can be a good father. So kudos on that, too. Yeah. And Thank thanks and, uh, and happy holidays to you and your family. Yes. Yeah. Happy holidays to you all as well. All right. You guys take care. All right. Well, big thanks to Sammy Perez of Prison Fellowship. Uh, we're going to move on now and we're going to bring on our second special guest of the episode, our old friend, John Howard. John, how are you doing today? Emphasis on old. Yes, <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm Good. a third person now, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. Well, as, uh, for anyone who might not know, of course, is uh, John Howard was editor at Capital Weekly for Many, many hundreds of years before I came on at the beginning of 2023. And, and uh, I wish we, you all could see he's actually wearing his Capital Weekly baseball hat yes, yeah. in the interview here. I know. I'm you know why I'm wearing that hat is because this morning I fell down. I tripped when I was doing a bunch of stuff here and knocked my head on a desk. And I have this big red welt. Oh. And, you know, I'm very concerned about my appearance, obviously. It's, oh. I didn't want a big red bump on my head. So there you go secret's out you know the secret is out well we thought it'd be fun to have john come on and uh we'll go over a little bit of how things are with capital weekly now i mean i i've i'm wrapping up year one uh it isn't like john went off uh, and hid in a cave anywhere he has been taking care of the oral history program essentially he became me and i became him 
over this year. So we thought it might be fun for us each to talk about how these things are going. And uh, John, uh, the oral histories have been going great. How how are you feeling about all of this? Well, I'm having a lot of fun. And um, I really enjoyed talking to people, most of whom I've covered over the years as a reporter, but talking to them in a different setting where you have a three hour, two or three hour interview um, that's very wide ranging and candid and it's a lot of fun. It's a different, a totally different um, perspective I have on these people. You know, we did Gail Kaufman, the campaign strategist a while back. We just finished um, Gary South, who was amazingly good. Um, we've done and Kurt, Pringle's, and Kurt Pringle is going live this week, correct? Yes. Uh, Kurt Pringle. We just, we finished him and, um, uh, uh, you know, the last Republican speaker in California. So it's been a lot of fun there. We have a wide variety. Of, we did Ward Connerly, who some of you may, may remember from Proposition 209 and other things. And you can find uh, all of these, by the way. All these are on video and they're on the Capital Weekly website. There's an oral history tab and watch them. They're ready to go. No charge. Uh, and uh, they're all there right now. They're they're thoughtful and nuanced. <laughs> which is what I, I kind of like. I suppose I'm an old wire service reporter. And so we did things, you know, Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and four stories a day or something. This is different. This is a lot more fun, and um, and so I'm really enjoying it. Also, I, it's scheduling is a lot easier, and I'm scheduling. Hard scheduling is not my strong point, and so this has forced me to do better things like that. So I'm trying to make a regular, get more regularity in this. But they are really worth watching. If someone hasn't seen them, they should go to them. Uh, like Tim said, the oral histories tab. You'll see quite a group. Um, Reagan's campaign advisor, for example, uh, federal judge, former U.S. District Court Judge Delton Henderson, who supervised California's prison health care system for a while, did many other things. And they have little anecdotes that make them fun. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And and John, so to put this in perspective, when you stepped down from Capital Weekly last January or this this past January, you had been covering news, largely political news, every day since 1974. 49 years. Well, that's true. Uh, it wasn't always political news. My first story that was assigned to me by my editor, then editor at the Vista Press, Lois Cavalier, there was a dog in a neighborhood that was barking and keeping all the neighbors up. And that was my first story to, <laughs> to cover that dog. So, um, But I came to Sacramento in 1980. And uh, so I've been covering politics either for one outfit or another AP or Orange County Register relatively briefly, Capital Weekly, 17 years. So, um, so yeah, I covered a lot of politics. That was fun. Well, and don't leave out the California Journal, the late, great California Journal. Yes. That's where we were both at there for a while. All three That's of right. us. Yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah. You're looking at the trifecta, the journal trifecta, right? You're listening <laughs> well, to. <laughs> and to put this all, you know, to bring it all back home, we actually just published an article by... A.G. Block, who was the longtime editor of the California Journal, then became yeah. a publisher of the California Journal, was dragged kicking and screaming into the publisher's chair. Uh, and he just did a look back on Kevin McCarthy's career, which he covered when it was yes. brand new at the California Journal. They named him Rookie of the Year, I think, in 2003. Uh, you know, so uh, it's, you know, it's a very small, it's a very small pond. You know, it's amazing about McCarthy, and we'll get to him later. We talk about, you know, who had a bad year, who had a bad year in California. But uh, A.G. nailed it. That rookie of the year nailed McCarthy because it got him as the ultimate networker. 
the person who gave gifts to the families of fellow legislators. I mean, he was doing everything the network, but not a whole lot of policy, uh, not driven by policy a lot, not a lot of internal compass there that you could see, you know, more more finger to the wind than anything. And you know what? They figured that out in D.C. after he started going for the speakership, say anything to get the votes. Many politicians do that, but he did it in a way that his colleagues picked up on it, aside from the right wing versus the moderates, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they didn't want him as speaker. His fellow Republicans didn't want him as speaker, and he didn't make it. Yeah. At least not for long. Nine months, I think, was his tenure. <laughs> Yeah. So when you left last year, we welcomed in Rich Eisen. Rich Eisen came from StateNet, California Journal. Uh, I believe it was the Capital Journal's. Capital Journal. Right. But I mean, it was, I mean, you had also been at the California Journal. Yeah. You were covering everything really, California and everything else. You were covering the entire kitchen sink. Uh, but now you have just been covering California proper and you've taken to it like a fish to water. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm happy to say that that you really just dropped right in and, and didn't miss a beat. And I'm wondering yeah. what for you was sort of the biggest challenge and what were the big surprises about running Capital Weekly and handling that as a project rather than running the Capital Journals? Well, you know, a couple of things. Getting back into the rhythm of our just our capital as opposed to being someone in the rhythm of um, a different kind of rhythm. When you cover all the capitals the way I did all those years at the journal, it, you um, what you're looking for is different. So I was looking more for trends, uh, policy trends that that cross all the state lines or multiple state lines, looking to see how uh, a bill or a law that was working one state, how it might, you know, trying to get an idea in my head of where it might go to next or how it might be, be approached differently. So it was a lot more of uh, not getting into the necessarily the nitty gritty of a bill, a, a bill in a particular state, but a trend, you know, that came out of a bill or a series of bills around certain subjects. Getting back into the rhythm of just our our capital and the players in our capital and, and um how our capital worked was was you know it took a little bit. I mean, I I, I got up to speed pretty fast because I had to. I really didn't have any choice, right? Um, and then and then learning our writers and the and and um, the rhythm, our internal rhythm of how we did things. You know, um, I'm sure you remember. I I, I face planted on a few things, but but mostly I, I like to think I'm a pretty quick learner, and I've been fortunate enough. I I done enough uh, freelance pieces for John uh, over the years that I, the, the editorial part of it, I, I felt pretty confident about. It was just the rest of the stuff and the rhythm and the timing of things. And, you know, you get to know the board again and you get to know the audience again and, and, and really get dialed in on what those things are. And that, it took, I got it pretty fast, but like I say, I had to. So yeah, that was well, it. Get that, those rhythms for a big deal. Well, and speaking of rhythms really seemed like the thing that from my perspective, you were getting used to was that we're a small team that does a lot is sort of our general capital weekly <laughs> MO, uh, probably not a good way to do things, but it's the way we do. And I remember when we were talking about the deadlines for the top 100, which is sort of the most high profile thing we do every year. Mm -hmm. I remember you were a little uh, gobsmacked 
that we turned it around as fast as we did, but yeah. in the end you did. And actually I think we got more attention on this edition of the top 100 than we've gotten in years. Uh, you know, having a majority woman top 100 was a big changeover. And so it wasn't that you just came in there and said, well, I'm just going to be a caretaker for this year and figure it out. You came in and like, you know, do the bathwater out. Well, I mean, I think anyone that knows me knows it. Uh, and you will remember the conversation. This is how naive I was. The thing, it's the things that you don't know that you don't know, right? And 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 John did a great job of preparing me for what the the top 100 was going to be. And and we had lots of conversations throughout. And John, of course, was incredibly helpful for, you know, maybe who to go talk to to learn a little bit more and this, that, and the other thing. And then, you know, really great with helping with the, with the write-ups and stuff like that. But the one, thing I, <laughs> the one thing I never bothered to ask was who, who who was ultimately the final bottom line decision maker on the list. I always assumed it was a group thing. And we were at coffee, you, me, and and uh, Molly Duke and our board chair. And I asked that question. I, I said, well, so who is ultimately the one that has to make the final call on this? And, and you both looked at me and said, well, you do. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> so, OK. So, well, you know. That does that's sound like you're out there swimming in the ocean by yourself. But the reality is, you know, everybody has ideas and we all see different things. Tim would see things. Hey, do we really want to have so-and-so as a top 100 person? Or, or I would say that. And we bounce the ideas off and the board has suggestions. I, you know, my final takeaway on the top 100 is uh, just for me. Now, obviously, I'm speaking from the perspective of many decades now, but I don't like young people. <laughs> I mean, I don't like him for the top 100. So it's not that I'm a, you know, a reprobate or a miscreant or just somebody who just doesn't like people. But the problem with Sacramento is that the, it's not even a problem, I guess, is that relationships develop over time. And it's especially true with lobbyists. It's especially true with them. And, and I didn't realize that when we started. I thought, hey, lobbyists are just one of the group of people here. The bureaucrats are lobbyists. They're administration people. Are, but the lobbyists are the engine of what makes Sacramento work. And that was true before we went to term limits. And it's true after term limits, even though they've been modified. It just seems to me that money talks. And the best lobbyists, I think, have that down. I'm not saying they should be the only ones on the list, I guess. But cool. although I have suggested having a list that has nothing but lobbyists, but that's not a list I'd want to do because I don't know how to do it. Well, and, and the other thing is, the lobbyists, I mean, I know it's easy for the media and for everyone else to kind of dog lobbyists. They, they get lumped in there with lawyers. You know, everyone loves to, to hate on them. But a good lobbyist is actually really valuable to legislators because they give them the straight dope. And, you know, I, I've always I heard that if a lobbyist lies to a legislator and the legislator knows it. They will never trust them again, yeah. and it will really have a negative impact on their career. And I'm sure that there are exceptions to that rule, but I think that being a trusted source saying, hey, I know this is my client, but this is really an accurate pre presentation of this yeah. issue. That's really valuable for legislators who have to learn a lot about a lot of issues very quickly. And having a lobbyist that is actually forthright and trustworthy, I'm sure is very, very, very worthwhile. And they do have tremendous clout, especially in their particular issue areas. I, I, I really do agree with you. And even though it sounds like I'm overly nice to lobbyists or kind of, it just seems like those are the consultants just seems like people have to rely on them because nobody knows everything. And what's really good. Uh, 
about non-term limits is to watch a legislator who comes to Sacramento and then develops an expertise in a particular subject, and they really know it. And after a period of years, they really know transportation or healthcare. They're the ones you go to for, for good legislation, I think. And the lobbies help play on that, I guess, you know. Um, well, they, they absolutely the do. The toughest thing is, like, I think Rich did, too, is, the, is finding out who in the capital of the staff people can shape legislation and direct it. Um, yeah. Well, and, and they, the lobbyists were really helpful there. I mean, a lot of the, you know, I'm, I mean, you know how this process works. You talk to a lot of people behind, you know, and, and you have these very um, uh, clandestine conversations, right? You don't even want anyone to see you talking with them at a coffee shop, right? Um, but, you know, I, I learned a lot about the behind the scenes people, that many of whom ended up in the list, not all, believe me, I heard about a lot of people that did not end up in the top 100. But I learned about a lot of people that I felt very, very good putting them onto the list. And, you know, I, I didn't go in with the agenda of saying, okay, this year it's going to be majority female. I did not do that. What I did do, though, is say, well, let's, let's take a look and see you know, uh, the let's take the broadest look we can and let's look at behind the curtain a little bit and who is making yeah. the wheels turn behind the curtain a little bit and see how that shakes out. Well, and that's how it, it, you know, it shook out the way it did because those are the names that came up over and over and over again. Uh, a lot of them from lobbyists, some of them from lawmakers or others I talked to said, you know, uh, the head of the Senate uh, the the top consultant for the Senate Health Committee or something. That's how those people got in in the into the list because people said, you know, I know if I'm working a bill, I have to be on the good side of this person because if I'm not, my this it doesn't matter. It's not going to go anywhere. So, I, I that was the one thing definitely I I did a little different on the top 100, and I thought it worked out pretty well this year. Yeah, I do too. It's a good list, and it had a lot of uh, it had lots of new people, I think, and. Um... It's a good read. And I know it's a lot of work. I certainly know it's a lot of work, but it's really, it, and also it's in a magazine form, which is pretty cool too. Yeah. I mean, actually print, you know, when you're, when you're so far removed from regular print, except maybe the healthcare issue and then the lobbying, you know, the magazine, you remember how rigorous print is and how yeah. much editing and reading it. And, you know, and you remember how there's always the mistake you catch right after the final, right after the sign print. off on the print. Oh yes. I know that well, and then we did the print issue right after that, which that's that one caught me a little off guard too. I had to really scramble a little bit to get to get everything squared away there, and it's different technologies and and on and on. But, yeah. but you know, I I thought it all came out pretty good. I mean, um, but yes, there there was definitely one of those deals where I said, okay, mental note for next year. Looking at the calendar, <laughs> let's be really sure you know these deadlines a little tighter. I think I think of the mistakes, you know, which I gloss over, but but they were embarrassing, and without mentioning names, obviously, um, I don't want to get shot, but I remember mistakes where, you know, I had one guy uh, uh, working for an outfit that he didn't work for, never had worked for, didn't like. But we, I had them that way. That was, you know, an error. Then the question was, how do we fix that? Do we? I mean, we ultimately corrected it, I think, in a good way. But the, but the question was, if we correct it, do we draw attention to a mistake? And at right. the end of the day, yes, you do, but you have to correct it anyway to show your own good faith. I mean, that was a decision. But there haven't been that many mistakes, considering how many people have been on that list. And this year, I'm sure you'll find the same. 
not that many mistakes. The people you talk to make it worthwhile. And then if you're comfortable, if you feel, hey, this is a good call, it's your own gut, you're in. That's the way to do it, you know? Well, and the, the difficulty with the mistakes is that no one can know about this list. So it's not like we can fact check it with the people on the list because they don't know. I mean, they don't know till the list comes out. This is like the Oscars. Uh, so there is a real, you know, that's one of the things I don't like is that there are times where we really should be, especially with, you know, staffers that we, there's not a lot yeah. of biographical information out there or someone maybe who sort of emerged as a political figure, but had not been for a long time. So there's not a lot out there. And I've sweat bullets on that before when we're yeah, we stuff out there and we just don't know. And we don't, you know, sometimes you just have to break down a column and say, Hey, we're working on this project. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what this project is, but it's a biographical sketch. And then, you know, that's it. But I mean, that is one of the conundrums there where you're trying to get this right without letting anyone know, especially because you may be doing that sketch with the idea that they're going to be on the list. And then ultimately they're not on the list. And that's, you know, there, the list can change right up to, I mean, I'm not kidding. We've had switches an hour before we went to print. People oh yeah, switched out on that list. So, uh, you know, you don't was, want to tell someone they're on the list and then they're not. It was getting rebuilt <laughs> right up to day of. I think. I think it got. I think. I think the reality is there were something like twenty-five top one hundred lists this year before the before the final one. Well, hey, you know what happens too with the list? Uh, the cool thing about it, and the horrible thing about it, is that it's numbered. It's ranked. So at the end of the day. You're just putting your little neck out there. <laughs> You're making this, this who is 79 better than seven or, you know, more worthwhile than 78, 81 versus 63 or something. I recall seeing a list that I was really interested in reading about the players in Los Angeles. Um, who are the big political players in Los Angeles? This was about 10 years ago. I think I saw this. And it turned out it wasn't ranked. It was alphabetized. Well, hey, no, I want them ranked. I want them. You got to have skin in the game. Yeah, that's the, you got right. You know, you've got to sort of do it, you know. So actually my best thing about the top 100 is when it's over, I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> you can breathe, you know. Well, uh, and you know, so so speaking about people that didn't make it on the list and John's hatred of young people, uh, one yeah. of the things that you introduced this year, Rich, was a new feature called Rising Stars. And this was exactly a response to that, that there's all these people out there who probably, maybe, probably don't belong on the top 100 list. Maybe they do, but they are, they are people who are going to be probably on that list or, or very likely someday and kind of giving a, a heads up that, that they're out there and that you should be paying attention to them. And that feature has been really well received. I think people really like idea. Yeah. These young people. And I, I personally, I've gotten a big kick out of it because their names, I don't know for the most part. I mean, a few of them I'm familiar with, but a lot of them I'm not. So and yeah, back, how that came to be? You know, when you look back, they are on the list. Uh, some uh, have been on the list. I mean, I think offhand, I think of Andrew Antwi, who had worked in the building, was uh, really knowledgeable about transportation. And years ago, I had somebody said, hey, you got to watch this guy. This guy's really, well, sure enough. And others said the same thing. It's one of those things that those people are probably on that list. Of, uh, well, some of them, I think, will eventually. I mean, I, I think of somebody like May Gates, who's a chief of staff at 24 yeah. years old. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, the thing that was really interesting to me um, with all of this is, 
the enthusiasm that people showed in nominating people. And, you know, you have to be careful because some, a lot of times people will nominate their, their best friend from the office or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. so, but they're not necessarily really doing anything all that great. The list of folks that we, that people nominated to me this year that, that I, you know, put into a file and we, and we just diligently went down the line, all are doing really, really great things. Now, some were in the building, some were, you know, peripheral and in, in, uh, entities around the, the Capitol. But yeah, it, they all of them were very worthy, had interesting stories and interesting things they're doing. And I think uh, I'm really looking forward to, to to getting a new list for the coming year too. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, because the interesting thing is a lot of those kids, well, I call them kids, right? But, you know, I, I didn't want to call it 30 under 30 or anything like that. That's kind of been done. Um, but I, but I wanted to, I did want it to be, you know, relative newcomers. So, you know, we just had somebody, we, we discovered one, one person that got nominated was actually in their forties. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's not really what, what we're doing here. But so mostly they were 30 or under. And I think we had one who was 31. She turned 31 while we're, while we were in the process of getting to her on the list. But, but I, I thought it was a good list and I thought it was a lot of fun and it, you know, I had uh, a couple of parents call me and say how great it was to see their son or daughter get some acknowledgement in the in the capital community. Uh, Did you get any calls from people who said, hey, I belong on that list? We've had those two, including one oh, conversation boy. in a hallway in the Capitol. Uh, I did not get, well, I no, I didn't. No one complained that they should be on the list, but, and I haven't had anyone complain that they're, that they didn't, that their nomination didn't get on the list. I, we pretty much got to everybody that got nominated, which is why I needed an hour to repopulate the list. But well, you know, it was a lot of fun. One, one thing I would like to see, and this is something, you know, speaking about the top 100 list again, going backwards, one of the things I wonder every year is if there are people that are working in cities that are not Sacramento who are having a major, major role behind the scenes. But because we're here and we're so Sacramento-centric, centric and I'm thinking, for example, like is the chief of staff to the mayor of Los Angeles making the trains run on time? And I just don't know it because I'm not there. Is, you know, is there someone in Sacramento, I mean, uh, San Francisco city politics who's not elected, who is an appointed official, who just has an outsized role? And I just don't know. And I I always feel like we're probably missing some folks. God, in San Diego, that city, it just seems like it punched above its weight in producing elected officials and uh, and and policy decisions. Is there someone there that's not an elected official that we should know about? So I'm really wondering, you know, maybe you'll get some nominations for people that are maybe working in some of the city halls around the state who are rising stars. I'd love to see that. You know, I'm sure they're out there. Well, I actually did consider... Uh, and the names are going to escape me now when I need them. But I, I thought about Karen Bass as chief of staff. I thought I thought about some of the big governor or uh, mayors. But I ultimately put those names to the side for the very reason you just talked about. There's no way for me to really know that, um, you know, the, the way that we know the capital community. So, yeah, that might be something for us to work on, figure out how how to do that. Maybe we take nominations the same way we did the rising stars, and then we figure well, out. Well, maybe how to maybe that. there are young people, you know, rising stars that we'll kind of keep an eye on, you know, 
out there, uh, you know, somebody that's maybe, maybe Holly Mitchell's chief of staff is 26 years old and kicking ass and taking names, you know, and we just don't know. I mean, those folks may be a good fit for rising stars, even though they're not in the capital per se, they're still in the California politics community. Oh, that's a great idea. Absolutely. So if you're listening out there and you know of someone who's, uh, who's in yeah. a city hall or in a county uh, board of supervisors. Sometimes you get people in regional governments. Um, you know, they and they they work on housing issues and and they work on transportation issues because they affect a wider area than just their cities. And those people do have an effect on legislation. They don't have the final say so on, on state legislation. They don't have a final say so. But maybe another list out there is the top 100 local players. Um, well, John, do you remember we did? I would want to do that. Well, do you remember we actually did? This is probably about. 2010 or 11 we did the top 10 california mayors yeah, and yeah. we did that list and it no one cared absolutely no one i don't even know that their parents cared no one paid attention to that list i was really surprised even the cities are uh, i mean to them if you live in you know if you live in la or san diego or san francisco or anaheim of course you care about local to some extent you care about local government but the counties are where it's at the counties, you know, there are five supervisors in each county. Those are the ones. Their staffs really have, uh, I think, they have a great deal of, of uh, clout as it relates to ordinances and local laws and stuff. Uh, and they represent, I think, like in L.A., I think the uh, a supervisor represents more than a state senator in terms of numbers. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're important people. And then a few years ago, we saw that reverse trend. It used to be you started out um, – at a school district, and then maybe you went to a city council, then you maybe went to the board of supervisors, and then you went to the state legislature. Well, now there are people, many people, and this has been true for a number of years, who've turned their back on going to the legislature. They'd rather work at the county level. I think term limits exacerbated that. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, so Rich, so as we kind of fold up this segment of the show, what was your biggest surprise for taking this over, uh, you know, in, in your last 11 and a half months at Capital Weekly? What was the big shocker? What was the big shocker? That's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure that there was anything that really surprised me, I, I would say. Um, you know, I, I, I think my eyes were pretty wide open on, on most everything. Um, but... I, I will say sometimes you forget how much people care about every little detail. You know, if they read your publication, they care about everything, right? And, you know, Capital Weekly, one of the things that, you know, I, I like to think has been there for a long time is that, you know, it's, it's, it's a publication people care about. So you know that going in, but then... You know, people would bring up stuff that I hadn't I hadn't thought of or what have you. You know that kind of a thing. Uh, so that that was maybe the only thing. You know, because someone. Well, no, I I'll give you an example. I went to an event at um, the California Museum, and it was uh, a, a women's group for that tries to promote women as good sources for journalists and uh, in the capital community. I it was called Win Like a Girl for those who. You know, there's many of us that are, we've had Robin Swanson on folks to talk about it, but um, 
for a while there, I was the only male journalist there. A few more showed up before the event ended, but for a while I was the only one there. And, and of course they, they, they brought that up and that was hilarious. But the thing it really brought up, what got me, made me realize, oh, wow, I really better, I better be sharp this year was as soon as they started talking about the formation of their organization, they noted it was basically started because in the first top 100, there were only a handful of women and they were, and they were so incensed that, you know, that was a big motivating factor for their organization. And I said, John doesn't oh. remember that at all. <laughs> so it, it, it made me realize how much people care about this. That was maybe, again, I knew it, but you don't know it until you're right in the middle of it. And then, then you realize people deeply care about, about this list and about the kind of coverage that they get. And, and um, you know, I've had, I've had, a lot of response to stories that that uh, you know people loved or didn't like for whatever reasons, and and you know that part of it again, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it was it was fun to get reinvigorated with that, right? Because I, I will be honest, in my previous position, you know, if I'm writing about somebody in Maine, they're not they're not going to call me from Maine and bitch at me, right? <laughs> I did, I thought I did, I I had I I really got uh, Paul LePage was not giving you giving you a no. piece of his mind. No, 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 though, though, well, he did once at a National Governors Association event. He he didn't care for me. But um, I had somebody from Ohio one time get on my case. I, actually, I, I, you know, the thing that would, people get on my case then in those days, if I use the state nickname, if I got the state nickname wrong, I could get lots of things wrong. But I once referred to, to Michigan as the Wolverine state. Well, uh, excuse me, Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin is... The Badger State. I recalled it the Wolverine State, and so I, I got a I got a uh, an email from somebody in Wisconsin saying, "Hey, you know that's the kind of thing that where 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 people get mad." Now it's on actual stuff in our you know the top one hundred, of course, but but other things that really matter. So that that part was uh, again I shouldn't say surprising, but it was it was a nice reminder that that this is something that a publication that people care about, and I'm really I'm really honored to be part of it. Well, it's been a fun <laughs> year and, uh, you know, I, I have to say I was concerned this, you know, John, as he mentioned, had been with Capital Weekly since 2005. He's been the editor since when did Anthony leave? Like 2009, eight, something oh, like yeah, that. 2009, 2010. So, I mean, he'd been the editor for so long and having another person come in, uh, was stressful, but I have to say, you know, I felt like you just took to it very naturally and it helped you had worked with AG who AG block has been on our board of directors since I think since the beginning. Uh, and you had worked with John as a freelancer and you'd been paying attention to the publication. So I feel like you, you really got what we were trying to do. So that was, that was helpful. So also uh, it's a lot of fun, truly. If you've been with other outfits in journalism, big, small, or in between, um, this is more fun than most of them, I think. And it's certainly more fun now than at least from the reporters I've talked to in the last, I don't know, three, four years at various news outfits. They aren't having a lot of fun. Some are, but most are not. And I think Temple Weekly is more fun than you might find elsewhere, you know? You know, that, that's actually a good point, John. That might have been the biggest surprise. I mean, you know, you know you're going to work hard and you know there's a big learning curve and stuff like that, but I had a great time this year. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in team. You know, I, I it's not cliche for me. I'm a big believer in teamwork and 
And I, I don't need a lot of personal kudos and that kind of thing. I never have. I, I enjoy seeing other people succeed. Um, and, you know, we bought, you know, we were able to bring Brian Joseph in on a, on a regular basis. We've been able to bring work with great folks like Dan Moraine and keep working with Sigrid uh, Bobbin and David Jensen and people like that. And, and it's, it has been a lot of fun to work with this whole team of folks. You know, you and Joe T, the conferences have been fun. Um, you just, you know, it's fun to be in the middle of stuff and to have a voice in the middle of it and try to do good work with good people. That There's nothing better. Well, you know, they used to say about editors at dailies or newspapers, there was a guy who worked at the Herald Examiner here in Sacramento before he went to the Seattle Times. And he said, fucking editor is one word. So <laughs> just remember, some reporters that don't like <laughs> You can cut that, Tim, if you want. It's okay. Oh, no. We'll, we'll keep that. So... <sighs> All right. So, you know, we're going to do a third segment. So uh, later on, we'll do a third segment on who had the worst year in California politics. But before we get to that, we should at least look at this week. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And uh, our our worst weeker this week was a pretty easy shot. Uh, Sacramento City Councilman Sean Loloe was indicted on federal charges and he has had an ongoing series of legal battles uh, last year about whether or not he even lived in his own district. Uh, this is the capper. And he seemed genuinely flustered uh, when they interviewed him uh, when I saw that story. And this does not look good. I don't know where this is going to land for him. But federal indictment, nobody wants that. And especially not if you're a, a city official. I think he easily took our worst week this week. Yeah, that's that's a pretty easy call. That's uh, well, that we should probably use that to segue in because we're talking a long time here. We should probably use that to segue into uh, the the one that we only get to do once a year, which is who had the worst year in California politics. And I would be venturing a guess right now that anyone listening to this, uh, everyone has their own ideas of this too. But uh, who who's on our list this year, Tim? Who's on our naughty and nice list this year? Well, the naughty we part know, of our list. We did talk about this uh, before the show. And so uh, I was going to rank them by chronological order when they entered the list. But Rich said, to hell with it. Let's do them in, in number. So let's start with, who do you have on number 10? Well, number 10, she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it's certainly not like anything, like an indictment or anything else. But um, you have to think that U.S. Representative Barbara Lee is not having her best year. She's been a towering voice in Congress for her district and for the state for a long time. And she's just not really getting any traction at all in her race to replace Dianne Feinstein in the U.S. Senate uh, with Katie Porter and Adam Schiff uh, pretty much sucking up all of the money and all of the attention. And she's trailing well behind them in the polls. And uh I think those her supporters are probably pretty bummed out about that. And so, yeah, de de definitely not an indictment or anything horrible like that. But I don't think she's having a great year so far. No, and I, I think that she and her supporters were maybe counting on Governor Newsom coming through with his pledge that he was going to appoint a black woman to a Senate seat, meaning that he was going to appoint Barbara Lee. And uh that obviously did not happen. And the governor appointed LaFonza Butler. And I, I saw the anger 
you know, there was anger from her supporters there that he had sort of sidestepped. He did indeed appoint a black woman to the Senate. He did not appoint the black woman that most people I think expected would be the front runner. So yeah, that was he a big cannot big. be having a good year. That was yeah. a big surprise. That totally was with Alfonso Butler, at least for me. Um, yeah. I was really surprised at that. We yeah. talked to Marisa Lagos and she said, let's be honest. Did any of us have Lafonza Butler on our bingo card? No, we did right. not. Only right. A. Smith. A. Smith is the only one who had Lafonza Butler on his bingo card. Well, that's not surprising. Uh, my next person I, probably should be up higher. I, I really, as I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, they should be higher. But, you know, uh, the former Trump lawyer, Chapman University professor, John Eastman, who's just in a world of trouble for his involvement in, in all of Trump's shenanigans around the 2020 election and the aftermath of that election. Um, we're still waiting on some court verdicts uh, on his trial, but e even regardless of what happens here in California, they've got, he's got trouble back in Georgia and Florida. I mean, they're, he's not having a good year. His, his, what, you know, this was a guy who was once considered a, you know, one of the really bright lights in, in the, the legal world and, and certainly in conservative politics, even though he, he, Failed to gain public office himself, but uh, yeah, it's been a real face plant for him, and I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with you about Eastman just breaking in to make comments on the list. But um, Eastman obviously is a capable attorney and has been known at, in that role for years. Professor at Chapman, uh, the latest case, you know, his involvement in the election steal or falsifying the returns. He wrote a memorandum, apparently, that's documented a lot of his views, at least one, maybe more. It seems to me he's in big, big trouble, like he said. Uh, and it's sad to see, although he doesn't act like he's particularly, um, you know, mournful about it. Uh, no. It's just a bad it's just a bad scene all around, I think. Well, another bad scene all around is um, a, a, another perpetual candidate, it seems, for Congress who seems to. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and he seems like he's perfected the art of the grift here because he never seems to have a chance to to win, but he always manages to fundraise well off this. And that's a guy named Omar Navarro, uh, who has run for office multiple times uh, as a Republican, who is now facing all kinds of legal charges for uh, mis. I, well, Tim, correct me if here. I think it was there were some funding issues, and uh, his mom got arrested. He's not 13 counts of wire fraud, 26 counts of falsification records, and three counts of prohibited use of campaign funds. And I think his mom was also charged. I yeah. mean, this is not... Well, I think you, this guy is in deep trouble. You said it the best. He's kind of like our the California version of George Santos. <laughs> well, Although when he did all that money in his account, what was he thinking? He put 100000 bucks in his personal account. Directly uh -huh. from campaign funds. What is he think? Does he really think nobody's going to catch that? You know, well, and I think Probably they did know, for a while, but you know, I really do think that there are candidates out there who know they're not going to win. I mean, this guy is in a uh, deep blue district, but he knows that he's going to be able to fundraise because there are people that probably don't live in California who say, I "I'm going to, I'm going to donate him, and we're going to, you know, fight the good fight." And he can take the stuff. And I think he figured that because he was never going to actually get elected, they wouldn't really be paying that much attention to his campaign finances. As, as we all noted with George Santos, George Santos did get elected. They weren't even paying attention to his campaign finances for a long time. So I think he had thought he was going to be able to pull the wool over people's eyes and he is not. And he is in work. 
he is in deep trouble. I mean, I don't, again, he has not been convicted and he claims that he's innocent, but not looking good. Really not looking good. I would, well, have, for me, also, he might've been higher on the list for me. Cause that guy, I think could be looking at some federal prison time. Well, well another guy anybody heard home. of him until he was uh, indicted? I did. I, I remember his I name because he would, you know, he'd be, he was sort of, you know, one of those people who would show up in on right wing media sites where he's talking about uh, his campaign and stuff like that. So I was aware that he was out there. There's a few of these. There's another uh, another person who runs again in Barbara Lee's seat every year. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but he's a Republican in Barbara Lee's seat. Good luck. You know, right. you know, I mean, but, uh, you know, there's there's always those folks, the sort of the gadfly candidates who figured that they can do this and and they, they get attention, they get money. And and in Omar Navarro's case, he got quite a bit of money, actually. Well, another guy who's uh, in a deep, deep well of trouble is uh, L.A. City Councilman Curran Price, who's also uh, in fact, he was supposed to get arraigned this week. And I think it got postponed again uh, sometime in January. But. He's facing all kinds of criminal charges, uh, embezzlement, perjury, conflict of interest, uh, allegedly voting on projects that, you know, with developers where he was, you know, you know, his wife's consulting firm was connected to it. And, you know, just the 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 what it seems to have become the the jour for L.A. City Council uh, happenings of late. I mean, my goodness, what a, what a streak that L.A. City Council has had over the last few years with with corruption and accusations of corruption. So uh, he would certainly be, he was my number seven, just slightly uh, behind somebody who's not accused of a crime, but another person, another price actually, who's who's uh, finding herself in some hot water. And that would be Alameda, Alameda District Attorney Pamela Price, who's now facing a possible recall. Um, has been making news for all the wrong reasons. Um, a lot of a lot of people in her district feel she's way too soft on crime. We we know what's happening in Oakland. Uh, our own Carla Marinucci, who's very involved in our oral history program, is regularly on social media complaining about about how things are in Oakland. Uh, rightly so, I think. Uh, and a lot of constituents in that area are very upset with Pamela Price too. And so now she's facing a recall. She seems to make her situation worse all the time. Tries to keep reporters out of her press conferences, which look, that's always gonna, a bad sign. That's, that's always a bad sign. Remember, it goes all the way back to to the to the, the old standard. You know, don't pick fights with people who buy ink by the barrel, right? That's us. Don't pick fights with the press because you're not going to win. And so, anyway, she is definitely she was my number six. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Yeah, I mean, until we see what actually happens, although I think she is ripe for recall. Uh, if I'm gauging the sentiment of the voters. Based on what I'm reading in the in the news media, she seems like she is really a target for the failings people see uh, in that city. And and to be fair, and most major cities are really having these kind of problems, but Oakland seems like it's feeling it worse than than most. Well, and let's face it, when when the voters are angry, somebody has to pay. And if you keep standing up and putting yourself up there with your face on the target, eventually they're going to hit you. And that's I think maybe what's happening a little bit in her case. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, another so we're person, in, now we're in our top five. Top five. And <laughs> this one, any one of these five could, could have had, had their moment at the top spot at some point or another. But um, another person who, again, didn't commit any crimes, but uh, Assembly Member Reggie Jones-Sawyer 
who is now the former chair of the committee, the Assembly Committee on Public Safety. Um, again, you can argue that Reggie Jones-Sawyer did not do anything wrong this year, right? He did not do anything wrong. But he, perhaps in the zeal to address issues like over-incarceration, which is very real, um, it became a very tough year to get some, some bills dealing with fentanyl and opioids, human trafficking, other bills through his committee, because those most of those bills would have increased uh, jail time and penalties for people convicted of those crimes. He is opposed to that. Those bills were getting bottled up. It was a bad year to bottle up bills like that because we were seeing, you know, the rates of opioid overdoses and deaths going through the roof. We're, we've seen this horrible uh rash of you know the snatch and grab crimes and crime rates and that became a real topic of concern for a lot of voters and then on the the one that was the hardest for him was the human trafficking bill that shannon grove uh got through the uh senate on a, i believe a unanimous vote and then it just you know he bottled it up in, in the assembly committee and it happened the timing was terrible because he got it right at the time when revis robert revis was coming in as the assembly speaker so he got hammered with questions about it at a press club event. I think, I think it was his first his first press conference, basically. Very first press conference as as speaker, yes. And then on top of it, it, it happened with about the same hour that Gavin Newsom, the governor, said yes, he was upset about the bill not getting through the committee, and he he wanted to get involved. I, I wish everyone could be there. I was there. I saw the look on Revis's face when that question got posed to him. I mean, that's not a question you want getting posed to you on your very first. This is supposed to be your coming out kind of a official coming out because, you know, he'd obviously you know been, been around for a while. But um, I, I was very surprised that Reggie Jones-Sawyer got replaced on that committee. Said nobody ever. I mean, that was the easiest call to make in the history of the legislature that that was going to happen. And so to no surprise, it did happen. So, I mean, some might think he had a great year. I think just from a purely political standpoint, I would argue the opposite. Well, it also didn't, I'm a little hazy on the memory here, but didn't he also get in a squabble with a journalist? He got uh, into a squabble with Ashley, Ashley Zavala. Zavala yeah. who, you know, look, again, if you're going to pick a fight with any of us, Pick, picking a fight with somebody like her, who's a, you know, a well-known, well-respected reporter, with a big platform, um, and and look to to everybody's great credit, all of the rest of the press corps that was around in that came to her defense. Uh, he, the, if you don't know what we're talking about, he he was essentially refusing to talk to reporters if she was there. They all said, "Fine, then you won't talk to any of us." Well, he needed to talk to the press, and so he ended up having to relent. And again, bad luck, man. That's just that's just bad optics, and so. Um, you know, I think he's paying the price to some extent for that. Um, another person who dealt a lot with bad optics and, and ultimately paid a price. You might be surprised because he he was he was our worst week of the of the, our worst uh, week winner or loser, however you look at it. So many times this year, you would have thought he would have been an easy number one, but we have our reasons. Number four, former California. Uh, Represented well, soon to be former California representative, former House United States House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who was and a former France. California Journal Legislator Rookie of the Year. Yes, three. Yes, yes, we have to own that one. He was our Rookie of the Year in two thousand four. I think is actually when it was, but 
But yes, if you get, unless you've been hiding in a cave, Kevin McCarthy desperately wanted to be Speaker of the House, so much so that in the beginning of the year, he endured 15 votes. He couldn't, even with a House majority, he couldn't get the, the votes for the first 14 votes. He had to give away so much and promise so much to get that final uh, number to get him elected that it ended up being his undoing because the the very things he gave up, in fact, he, you know, essentially he allowed one person to be able to call for his removal, which the vote happened and he got removed from office. We talked earlier, actually before the podcast about this, and I, I say McCarthy way up on the list uh, of having the worst year. He, it's true. This was a, it all occurred in US and DC. We're talking about a California list, but he's a California representative. There are questions, as you pointed out, uh, Rich, earlier uh, in, in a story about the timing of his departure. He said it'll leave by the end of the year, the timing of that departure, what that means for replacing him in a special election and with the timing of that. But that aside, he looks so foolish on the national level. And it's true, his district isn't going anywhere. It's staying Republican. Vince Fong, I think, is already announced and he's going to he's known up here and he'll probably win that election i would think well uh, however you know their question right now because vince fong had already registered to run uh for For a re-election legislature yeah and you can't run for two races at the same time and there's there's a problem and he's being sued i think by one of the other folks in that race saying hey this guy's run for two so this may even be a worse you know if his chosen successor yeah ends up getting uh, barred from running because he already was running for another race. That would just Good be thing. another pick yeah. on the pants. That's, yeah. that's kind of thing. A lot of these races hinge on, you know, it's just McCarthy's defeat was so widely around the world. Yeah. It's just like it's, and he's become sort of a, he's sort of a watchword for consistent failure and well, inability I, to, you know, to, so to totally handle all contests. I totally agree with you on that. He is he is literally the poster boy of failure for this year. The only reason he's not higher in, on, on the on the list I put together is because when he does actually leave Congress, he's going to walk across the street, become a lobbyist, and he's going to he's going to make five times his salary. He's going to make huge speaking fees. I mean, the, he he's going to yeah. land with the most golden of golden parachutes. The they top all people, <laughs> the top yeah, three somewhere that there's a turnover in Congress. Uh, God, this is a few years ago, but it was when Cantor lost that election. You know, he's running and he was in, a lead, in the leadership, lost that election. I think he was in another Virginia. young gun. And he yes. wound up, yeah, and he wound up getting fabulous, whatever it might be, lobbying job. That's going to happen with McCarthy, no doubt. Hey, oh, and yeah. then the flip he's, side of this is, you know, we. We don't know what's going to happen in 2024, and and there is a possibility that Donald Trump could be president again, and uh, McCarthy could end up in the cabinet. Now that said, McCarthy floated that in an interview, I think, and then immediately the Trump camp uh, put out a press release saying, "Hey, we really don't like it when candidates suggest that they end up in the." I don't think I really don't. Well, I, I don't know about Trump. He might. He might win. You're right. But as far as pointing McCarthy, uh, that would be problematic in my uh, in my view. He he's already pissed Trump off. Trump may or may not be really pissed off at him, but I think McCarthy sees his golden parachute so to yeah. and going into a really high-end lobbying i can see him wanting to make money to hell with the dealing with the capital you know yeah, he's gonna he's going for the bucks i i would be very surprised our our number three guy my number three guy a lot of people may not even be familiar with this name but but 
the, the top three people on our list, I have them here because these are the three biggest face plants of the year for me. McCarthy could be number three here, but but the only reason that Harry Sidhu, the former mayor of Anaheim, is, is above McCarthy is because he, he, as with Curran Price and Omar Navarro and John Eastman, he is facing very, very serious legal trouble. And there was a whole scandal, some kickbacks, the with uh, dealing with the Anaheim Angels and on and on. You can yeah. go look it all up. But he's looking at some serious jail time, isn't he, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, the numbers I saw were kind of stupefying, like 10 to 20 years. I, it seems like that always gets walked back. And he did plead guilty, but just straight up corruption and shocking. I mean, it's Roundup sports team, which, you know, I hate to say this, but that seems like an unsurprising development is that getting the jockeying to get a sports team into a, into a city seems like it just brings out the worst in people because there's so much money there. So it brought out the worst in him. He's looking at really, really serious jail time, at least from what I've read. He has not been sentenced yet, although I've read that the sentencing was supposed to have already taken place, but I have not been able to see that that happened. But yeah, I think he definitely is way up on our list this year. I wouldn't want to be him. Well, our number two is not a guy facing any jail time, at least as far as I know. But man, if you want to talk about a fall from grace. Uh, but at the end of 2022, I think a lot of people made the presumption that Nathan Fletcher was on his way to the California legislature and probably beyond. Uh, the ultimate power couple married to uh, Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher, uh, the head of the, of, um, the Cal Fed. Uh, you know, former assembly member herself. I mean, he looked like the golden boy. And then what happened, Tim? Well, he, back in March, he announced that he was checking into a treatment center for post-traumatic stress and alcohol abuse, et cetera. Uh, three days later, it comes out that there was a person charging him with uh, a having a sexual relationship and then firing her because it went bad and uh, causing her all sorts of stress, really negative things. He says that this is not true. Then he kind of walks that back. Then he says he's going to step down from his uh, city council seat or I mean, excuse me, county board of supervisor seat, but not until after he gets out of rehab. It's bad. And then another woman came forward who had been an intern of his at a at a nonprofit that he used to run said that he had been inappropriate with her and that she had been reported. She had reported it at the time in 2015 and that they had covered it up. I mean, it was just game over. This guy went, you know, in the course of four days, he went from being a front runner for a Senate seat to, uh, you know, a front runner for getting a divorce. The only thing that's going <laughs> right in his, in his uh, life is that uh, Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher has stuck by him, but, Everything else has fallen away. And you're right. This was a tremendous fall from grace. And John and I talked about this. John remembers Nathan Fletcher when he was a Republican golden boy married to Mindy Fletcher, who was, and they were sort of a Republican golden couple way back in the day. Yeah, it's really sad. Like like Rich said, the fall from grace is pretty dramatic. And it was just kind of weird. They seemed like a, Lorena Gonzalez and Nathan Fletcher anyway, seemed like a absolute power couple. And Obviously, we don't know people beyond, you know, their private lives, but when they're politicians and their private lives impact their public performance, then it's a, it's a big deal with him. That case was, his situation was sad. 
really, really sad. Well, and he doesn't have the the, the golden parachute that Kevin McCarthy's going to have. No. I no. mean, that's that's why he's above McCarthy on this list. I mean, McCarthy. I mean, let's face it, McCarthy screwed up everything he touched in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the people give him, and he's earned a lot of credit for helping his party in a lot of ways. But this year, this year, I mean, he sold his soul and he's paying the price in terms of his position, but he's still going to come out okay. Nathan Fletcher is not coming out okay. This, this, this is, he's not going to walk into, you know, into any private firm and, and get a, you know, a seven figure job anytime soon that this was a real real hit and you know it's sad to see but you know he did it to himself so that's how he got to be number two right below our top choice for the year and again we had criteria for this if you're listening out there you might have different opinions on all this but it is really hard to see a, a fall from grace with the potential uh of this one any worse than mark ridley thomas the la city council former legislator here in Sacramento, who is also looking at lots and lots of very serious charges. Um, and he was a kingmaker. He was a kingmaker in Southern California. And I think it really rocked the world of a lot of the folks who supported him. And I think it's it's going to be one of those things that um, lasts a lot longer than some headlines. Yeah, well, and he's, I mean, he was convicted, sentenced to 42 months in federal prison. I mean, that is no joke. And it, his son was swept up in this whole scandal. Uh, I mean, it, it was horrific uh, for a guy that was very well regarded in his community, I think. And there were a lot of people that were really shocked to see this happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody can really argue that he had the worst year in California politics. This is really grade A nightmare level uh, end to your career. I, I think it raised questions beyond what he did, his own conduct. It raised questions about the, the credibility of USC. This is one of California's major educational institutes, one of the most well-funded institutions in the state, a private institution. But it raised questions about the morals at USC, which they've tried to address. And this scandal came after that other USC scandal of a year or two back, dealing with sexual harassment mm -hmm. of young students. That came after this issue about USC spending millions of dollars building dormitories for foreign students because they were currying foreign students because of their great, you know, their the greater level of tuition they pay. Mm -hmm. USC did not come off too well on this whole thing, and they may have made amends. I hope they do uh, take care of issues like this. But having um, this legisl former legislator, uh, well known in the Bay in the LA area, having him convicted of something like this, and then getting sentenced to jail time. And Tim, you're right. It's, that's no walk in the park. 42 months in a federal institution is no walk in the park, believe me. And at 68 years old, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, he may or may not serve that full time, but he's he's going in at 68 years old. He's not a kid. So, you know, he, he, this, I mean, certainly not a life sentence by any stretch of the imagination, you know, in, in logical terms, but, you know, he's not a young guy and his chance to rebuild all of this stuff uh, whenever he gets out, it's going to be pretty compromised. So, well, you know, it's, sad. it's really sad. You know, a lot of these people that have gotten convicted of corruption, ultimately, the truth is a lot of times they actually did a lot of good. I mean, they, obviously they did things that were terrible and they need to be punished for that. That's inappropriate. But I know that Eric Smith wrote a really interesting column saying 
he needs to be punished. This is awful. And it's a shock, of course, but he did a lot of good. And we need to remember that he's not this, he's not all bad. And, you know, it's like, I always think about Huey Long, you know, back in the thirties, he was this just horribly corrupt uh, elected official, I think down in Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken, but he built bridges. He probably built more bridges that benefited poor people who were able to get places in Louisiana than Louisiana than any other politician ever had. And when he was killed, uh, ultimately, you know, poor people were terrifically sad, even though he'd been awfully corrupt, just a terrible, terrible uh, politician in so many ways. But he did bring home the, the pork and and did things for you know his constituents. And I think that Mark Ridley Thomas, he did actually perform for a lot of the people in his community. However, he also took terrible advantage of of his trust of his public trust. You know, I think Rod Wright like that, uh, the late uh, former Senator Rod Wright, who was did a lot of great stuff, um, and and he was an expert, probably the premier expert in the legislature on, on gambling, on, on uh, tribal gambling, tribal gaming. He really knew this stuff. And he was the go-to person on policy issues. He really, really knew this stuff. Then he got into legal trouble because he, he apparently where he was living was not in his district. And uh, he was, you know, out, ousted. And that was, that was the end of that. Although the thing difference there is I would make the argument that Rod Wright was punished because there was a district attorney from a opposing party. As I recall at the time, there were several other legislators in that same era who were doing the exact same thing. Sure. There was no one willing to go and push that. And, uh, you know, that's I, one of the ironies because an yeah. elected official who gets punished for whatever, uh, it can claim it's politically motivated and it is, but the answer to that is, so what? <laughs> yeah. What isn't right? Yeah. Well, you know, this is one of the things people, you know, our political system, the two-party system as it exists in the states, is incredibly wasteful because we spend all this time every election trying to undo what we've been doing for the last two or four or six years. And it's not efficient in in any sense of the form. However, what you do have working in your favor is that you, in theory, because you have divided government in the sense that you have some Democrats, Republicans, and in some cases, even independents, you know... I could see that any party official has it's to their benefit to sort of turn a blind eye to corruption or to questionable behavior, whereas it is absolutely not, you know, looking at the other side, the other party and finding corruption and digging that out is to your benefit. And so that is a benefit to our incredibly bizarre two party system, which, again, has problems. And one of the one of them is that it's just very expensive to campaign and you end up getting these sort of these extremes. But the value there is that you have people that have a vested interest in trying to digging out corruption and, and misbehavior and bringing that to the public's attention so that the people that are committing that can be punished at the ballot box, if not, you know, otherwise. And, uh, and so that is the idea. And, and I think Rod Wright found that out the hard way. If I think if he'd had a democratic DA, probably would not have been punished. And I certainly know that there was a case, I think at the exact same time where there was a Republican uh, legislator who I remember one of the things that one of the papers had been sending flowers to the address and the flowers were just sitting on that front porch for months collecting uh, mm-hmm. because that legislator did not live at that tiny, tiny apartment. They lived in the 
in a very nice mansion uh, in an actual in the actual uh, district next door. Um, so he found out the hard way that you can't always get away with that. Right. Well, guys, it has been an interesting, fascinating, really conversation. It's been uh, it's been mostly a great year, except for the ten people that we just had on this list. Uh, I know I had a great year, so I'm I'm going to be very thankful for that. Going into a little bit of a break here. Uh, thanks, John Howard, for coming on and for doing obviously doing a great job on the oral history program. I had a great year too. Yeah, it's it's been fun, relaxing, <laughs> running around, cleaning my house for one thing. Trying to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. that 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 uh, that you're not uh, doing just the uh, sit on the couch, watch TV retirement. I like that. No, at least not during the day. All right, well, guys. Well, thanks so much, and we are going to take a break uh, till the end of till the beginning of next year. So, uh, if you're you're jonesing for podcasts, you're going to have to go backwards. There's plenty of good ones. We have, I think, 325 back episodes floating around back there, so you can uh, dig around if you want to hear some old news. <laughs> absolutely well hey guys it's been a great one and uh thank you, forward thank to next you year. All, all right happy new year guys thank bye you. take care guys the capital weekly podcast is produced by tim foster for open california